Greetings, forms. I am another form. What form are you? I am a form from the form of form. Form? You know, this script really needs a little bit of work. We're talking about Battle Beyond the Stars! everybody and welcome back to your new favorite show the more you nerd my name is drew and this month we are talking about star well we're not talking about star wars in particular we're talking about some some conflicts that happen in sort of an astral plane we're talking about uh uh, uh miles i couldn't do this without you help me out here with describing this month all right, so in 1978, a cultural phenomenon was released in Star Wars. And, and like a lot of cultural phenomenons, it's, it's something that no one saw coming. No one expected Star Wars to be the picture that it ended up being. Some people thought it might have done well, but no one expected it to be massive. I mean, this thing had people lined around the blocks. And I mean, you, you can find old newsreels and things on YouTube about the opening of star wars it was insane i mean i I, and, fe- I feel like even our our least nerdy listeners or at least pop culture nerdy listeners are familiar with the popularity of star wars well i understand that but but this set a shockwave throughout hollywood because you know lucas wasn't part of the studio system he he kind of you know made it his own and everyone wanted one including famous producer Roger Corman, uh, known for making um, horror pictures, genre stuff, and and often things that were cheaper that turned a profit. And so what makes this one interesting is this one does has a reputation of, of, I would say, one of the most known Star Wars riffs that were immediately responding to Star Wars. Um, This is one that, you know, it was it was a modest success when it came out and it had some some real talent behind this the camera yeah so we'll we'll get into that as we talk about this movie battle beyond the stars so as miles already mentioned uh roger corman produced this this film uh noted b movie director roger corman oh miles name some other stuff that he was responsible for Oh, like I said last week he was um <laughs> responsible for all of the classic uh, Edgar Allan Poe adaptations uh, starring Vincent Price, who is one of my favorite actors. And he has been making movies and producing movies uh, longer than well, that longer than either of us have been alive and yes. has. I mean, New World Pictures was a massive, massive yeah. company in the 80s. I remember seeing so many films with that, you know, logo. Um, you've seen a lot of these things on MST3K for sure. Um, as far as some of his bigger stuff outside of the, the post stuff, um, he, I mean, he just did a lot of different kind of horror stuff. You had, uh, some Karloff stuff with tales of terror. You had a couple of the sci-fi films like the man with the X-ray eyes or the haunted palace. 
Um, but most most of his famous stuff when he was really blowing up in popularity was his his post stuff. And it really made a, a massive, massive star out of Vincent Price. And basically, Corman was smart. He knew it was better to be a producer than it was to be a director, even though he still did that stuff and produced horror movies today. I mean, the sci-fi channel has kind of, I would say, taken advantage a little bit of his older age. <laughs> um, but I mean, all those Sharktopus movies, that's Corman. Um, and he's, I mean, but he's also known for giving people their start. I mean, among the people that became cultural phenomenons that he, that because he had this kind of working class attitude towards giving young filmmakers and young talent a chance, Francis Ford Coppola, Ron Howard, Martin Scorsese, John, Joe, uh, Joe Dante, John Sales, James Cameron. Some of the acting careers he helped launch, Peter Fonda, Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper, Sylvester Stallone, William Shatner. I mean, this guy may be known for kind of the low-budget stuff, but his impact on the pop culture of the 20th and 21st century is immeasurable. And and that that sort of that not just that work ethic, but that bond that he seemed to form with people is not just something that I see with who he has worked with in multiple films, but I see that kind of going down the line with, with some of the people that he worked with, specifically some of the people that he worked with on this film. Uh, so let's, let's get into to sort of the, the, the two minute plot summary of this movie. Cause there's some stuff that we need to talk about and there's some stuff that we need to talk about. um it's it's uh you take uh two-thirds star wars um a dash of star trek and a third of doom and you put it together and what do you got <laughs> yeah so this this uh this whole movie centers around a planet called akir and it's uh, a population the akira you might wonder why they're called the akira well yes this is <laughs> this is a seven samurai riff and yes, the people on the planet was named after Akira Kurosawa. So there you go. That's what you got. So we've got our main character uh, named Shad. Yes, his name is Shad, uh, who who uh, is an Akira from uh, an Akira from this planet, and who, that is set upon by Sador of the Malmori. And do they ever explain what the Malmori are? No. Nope just bad guys you can read into a lot of <laughs> of things um but uh but as they they get into it sador is trying to conquer the planet f f for whatever reason we don't really know i, I think at the very beginning they say something about resources but it doesn't look like they have any <laughs> yeah uh and so shad goes out uh uh to to find people to help them defend the planet only being able to offer them food and shelter as a reward um yes so um so i think before we go, go into the plot because this is i want to do more of this i want i want more of like you and me having a chit chat about this movie um because i think the plot itself is i mean we'll bring up stuff but i mean if you can think of the the things that we cited that's that's the movie it's it is it is diet uh, seven samurai it is caffeine free magnificent seven 
to the point where two characters in this movie literally reprise their Magnificent Seven roles as is characters wonderful. in this movie. <laughs> yeah, guys literally, literally named Cowboy. Yeah, I'm not even talking about him. Is he in the movie? Is he in Magnificent Seven too? I believe he is. Because the, the two I know of are John Saxon, Sador, the, the, of the Malmori, the evil uh, the guy, uh, is the character Calaveri, Calavera from Magnificent Seven. And uh, Robert Vaughn, um, who plays Gelt, the assassin, and, and, and uh, with the bounty on his head in this movie, uh, played uh, Lee in the Magnificent Oh, you know what? Seven. You're right. You're right. For some reason, I thought I thought he was. I thought he was a Western actor as well. He may have been, but I, I might have just lumped him in. I mean, George, George Papard is the character who plays uh, Cowboy. Uh, who is probably best known for being on the A team? Yeah, as Hannibal. As Hannibal on the A team. Um, oh man! And a, uh, also, uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh really? Wow! I, you know, I've never seen that, but you know, that's a whole that's a whole other. Uh, yeah, he's, <laughs> whole the, he's, other. he's the he's the male lead. So yeah, this this cast is pretty, pretty wild. Uh, Richard Thomas plays the young Shad, who is very much the blonde Luke Skywalker type. Um, oh, I yeah. was, and, I, and as soon as I see him, I, I see Bill Dembro from the Stephen King's It miniseries, because that's the main thing that I know him from. And I will say I was pretty delighted to see him. He has the same delivery in it as he does in Battle of the Stars. And I found that extremely charming. I mean, this, that dude has not stopped working. He is in Ozark. That's the most recent thing he's done. He's he's been all over the place. Uh, we yeah, mentioned- he, he transitioned to TV pretty, pretty well. And I mean, he just he just works. Hmm. But uh, we, oh, I think, we, well, he was from the Waltons, too, wasn't he? Uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, we mentioned uh, Sador, the the evil guy is played by John Saxon who has a, a huge catalog of credits. I most know him as uh, the white guy from Enter the Dragon. <laughs> the, the guy who can't fight quite as much as the other two people, but um, he has, has been in a number of things, uh, including Black Christmas. He was in A Nightmare on Elm Street. He was apparently a teen star back in the day. Um, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big John Saxon fan. Uh, you've got Robert Vaughn as Gelt, a Robert Vaughn who was a big time. Uh, you know, he was he was also on the A team, <laughs> but he was he was uh, just in a number of of other things. Um, he did a lot. A lot of these people are are, are TV actors as well, which you don't see a lot of of of, well, of film actors back in the day. I think a lot of that is, and part of it was they were cheaper. And Corman, I don't think Corman, like a lot of uh, independent producers who have made uh, quite a lengthy career, you know, there used to be a huge divide between TV and film. And TV was seen as lesser. Yes, and, and a lot of times honestly, if you were a TV actor, you didn't get a lot of movie work. I feel like any. that's really changed in the last 10 years. That is a very big difference. It, it's changed. I would really say that it started to change, I would say, in the late 90s a little bit. But uh, yes, in the last 10 years, that has been fully reversed. I agree. Um, but at this time, 
you know, it, it wasn't good, but guys like Corman or Lloyd Kaufman or, or all these genre producers who didn't care necessarily where you came from in terms of, you know, if you were a TV actor and how that might appear, they just want to make their picture. And yeah. especially these young hungry actors, they're all going to work with, a you know, all these other actors who either were adventurous in their selection of movies or just they needed the money. Some of these guys were some were just genre work workmen and women, but some were just like, you know, actors who their heyday had come and they were just taking roles that they could get. I mean, that happens, you know, happens to a lot of performers. And it especially happened a lot, you know, in this time and and what and prior. And I think what's cool about this is while there is a lot of I guess the equivalent of someone copying somebody else's homework about this movie. <laughs> and there's no denying that whatsoever. Just change it enough so it looks like you didn't copy. <laughs> right. Uh, it's like it's like when you're told like, oh, you you have to cite this, but you can't paraphrase it and you can't plagiarize. And you're like, well, what do I do? I will just change a couple of these words, move these syntax around. I mean, because what, what are you supposed to do? So <laughs> I'm I'm oversimplifying an old English paper problem people used to have. <laughs> now um, there's a computer program you can run on it but uh but, right. so, <laughs> but so, i love that this is called intended as a futuristic magnificent seven in outer space because well one <laughs> that's exactly what star wars is and magnificent seven obviously as you pointed out uh is a ripping off akira kurosawa's seven samurai hence the name of the planet so so this is where i also have to i have to I have to say this is super deliberate because Star Wars didn't rip off Magnificent Seven, Seven Samurai as much as it did The Hidden Fortress was. Sure. But, but and, and it's very interesting that you have this this other picture that is uh, <laughs> just based off a, a different Kurosawa film uh, that's set in space, which is just, you know, it's it just adds that little icing on the cake. Yeah. I mean, there is there's there's some Magnificent Seven in in Star Wars for sure, because I mean, Lucas worshiped Kurosawa. For sure. As as a lot of filmmakers uh, tend to do. He was an excellent filmmaker. Um, so I want to I want to preface this month with a question for you, Drew. OK. When you are watching a movie that you kind of know to be building off the, the Star Wars hype train, what what is it that's going to excite you or interest you? Knowing that you're likely going to get some sort of regurgitation of Star Wars, what are you looking for in terms of being entertained or enjoying a picture? I need it to be fun, uh, first off. Like, I don't need it to be a parody necessarily, but I need it to be fun. And And I feel like... While there are some really slow parts of Battle Beyond the Stars, I feel like this movie is kind of fun. It, it's it's definitely not as good as Star Wars. No, no, it it lacks a lot of things. And honestly, so the, the screenplay was written by John Sayles, who is an excellent writer, and he had already written the very funny and self-aware Piranha. So I was kind of expecting that kind of thing from this. So he did Piranha first, but he does this and he stays in the genre because he does Alligator, The Howling and an early draft of E.T. the Extraterrestrial. So he stays in science fiction and horror for a bit. 
And I think that's why I'm, I'm slightly disappointed because I think the weakest part about this entire film is the actual script. It just it, it meanders and it makes me wonder because there are moments in this movie that make me feel like, oh, there was probably a scene here that is on the cutting room floor somewhere that we will never, ever see that just explains something um, that a lot of this movie suffers from. Being. All on the ships, so so I say this, there are like 12 different ships in this movie. Which should uh, excite you. Which which I do like. And I like that they're all different designs and they all look like they have different uh, different, you know, design mythologies and things like that. They control differently and all of that. That I, I really like. What I dislike is that this whole thing about the Magnificent Seven, he doesn't go to like another planet and get into this dusty bar and meet these people. He just his ship bumps into their ship and they talk for a second and decide to join the crew. And it's like, <laughs> Well, he goes on this weird little pilgrimage at one point and like, you know, oh, I hear so and so and you can go here. And so he does a little bit of that. There are two scenes in particular that 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 are like that. And we'll get into those particulars as we get to it. Um, But but the big the biggest thing that I have to say is that I, you know, this this movie. It's definitely not like it it had a budget of two million dollars and it made eleven million dollars. $2 $2 million, even in 1980 money, ain't that much money uh, when it comes to making a movie. Uh, Star Wars itself, uh, a couple of years earlier, had a budget, I think, of $10 million out of the get-go. Um, it, it, Which uh, was over budget. I mean, I would say that's still a, a mid-sized budget for that time. But but uh, but so so we have a, a couple of notable other things that that are in its favor. So. Uh, this movie was directed by Jimmy Murakami, who is mostly an animator. He he gets credit from what uh, we have read. Roger Corman was just as involved in the director's seat as Murakami was. That tracks, uh, you know, what what are you going to do? Uh, Jimmy Murakami, uh, you, he is mostly an animation director and known for things like uh, heavy metal, uh, known for, uh, oh, some some other things here. Oh. You know, he also uh, formed a, a production group with with his, his co-creator, Fred Wolf, and they they sort of produced this little thing called the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This is the <laughs> guy that's responsible for the Ninja Turtles TV show where we talk about like when you talk about how many people out of out of Corman films have gone on to just incredible careers. Murakami is definitely one of them, even though he is the one that most people looking at this cast and crew list have not heard of. Uh, Well, so, you know, we talked about James Cameron, who does the special effects on this film. Well, this is also where Cameron met a carpenter. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on, because we got to go ahead and tell this story because because James Cameron was hired onto this movie not to do special effects. He was hired to just be. A model maker, a model maker. He he was mm-hmm. going to 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 make models for the movie. And. Uh, wouldn't you know it as it all goes through the 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 art director quits. <laughs> Corman sees this. Uh, he he gets he gets a tip off from Gail Ann Hurd, uh, <laughs> uh, who would end up being one of Cameron's wives at some point. That yeah, just bring him on, and uh, yeah. So so James James Cameron becomes the art director for this movie, 
uh, and ends up working tireless hours. He is spray painting McDonald's containers to make sets. And yes, you can see that stuff. Hearing that kind of stuff delights me. I love that kind of thing because it's it's certainly the the whole thing looks cheap enough but like in the in the most endearing way but it it looks cheap but it doesn't look as cheap as i expected it to no it 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 certainly looks of i would say more than a b quality um well b plus i mean it's definitely taking the lessons of star wars and it is like like the, the the like it wasn't a thing flying across the screen it was the camera flying around the model the lighting is not as good as star wars it looks like a model it doesn't look quite as real as star wars was able to get but the fact that they got close enough to that is really quite impressive even if i didn't love the designs of some of the ships and and, and well and it, it just it shows the craft at work in Cameron's head. And I mean, I mean, this is a director who has made, you know, two of the highest grossing films of all time. He has helped basically, I wouldn't say he personally created, but he definitely helped popularize and move forward specific filmmaking techniques, uh, especially the, the filming in 3d, but I mean, he's, he's used his entire career to kind of forward the physical filmmaking. And it's it's the only reason why I'm at least interested in seeing an Avatar sequel is because I, he hasn't been behind the camera since the first one. Yeah. Back, or, or, uh, at least, as long as a fiction film, at least. And yeah. it's a guy that like, I mean, his, he's got a very, <laughs> a very impressive resume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, but that, you can but- see that kind of attention to how much he appreciates the craft even here. And so when he sees someone working just as hard as he does and is working to keep everyone's spirits up, and that would be another another carpenter on the set, Bill Paxton, who would be <laughs> a future actor that Cameron would use and also great actor. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but that's not even the only thing. Like, so, so the other side of this, so we've got, you know, pretty good special effects. I mean, better than I definitely better than I expected. Well, you, and, you've got quality people at the at the. The infancy of their career. So and, and and as part of that, we also have the score of this film. The score of this film is in parts very much a Star Wars take uh, and also very much. Oh, yeah. I heard Star Trek cinematic music in it I like the music why. that you would hear in the motion picture uh you know star trek the motion picture that we watched on this show not that long ago and as i looked up the 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 uh the the score master the the uh james horner is his name uh yeah it turns out he did the score for star trek 2 and star trek 3 <laughs> so i have probably heard yeah i have grown up hearing music just like this my entire life watching Star Trek movies. And uh, yeah. this, this is his first big, this is his first big gig. And, and to the point where uh, looking up, uh, looking up Horner, the only reason Horner got signed on for Star Trek two is because uh, the Jerry Goldsmith, the, the uh, who did Star Trek one, they couldn't afford him. But by the time they got to Star Trek four, 
they couldn't afford James Horner, <laughs> so, <laughs> which is just it's 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 that age old problem. Uh, but Horner also did the scores for uh, Commando and Kroll and Cocoon and Aliens and Titanic. <laughs> These other movies that hmm, maybe James Cameron is familiar with some of these people who put in the work. Well, and the thing is, I mean, yes, this is the beginning of a lot of these people's careers and going in. And I would say this, I would not go into this movie expecting the caliber of quality that these people end up turning out for sure. You know, this is this is everyone's, uh, you know, first day at camp. Let's let's put it that way. It's their student film before they became professionals. I mean, it's not they were professionals doing this, but. Like, yeah, but this, the, but don't go in and be like, oh, James Cameron worked in on this and James Horner and you got all, all these great people involved. And well, yes, but I, I do want to temper expectations because while this movie uh, for a Star Wars clone is pretty entertaining, there is some, there's some weird stuff that really turned me off about this movie. Yeah, let's get into it. So let's, uh, are you already talking about plot? Because we can talk about plot. Yeah, we can yeah. Talk about characters. Um, yeah, we can talk. We can about talk some plot stuff. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about Shad as a wet noodle of a character. <laughs> yeah, Shad. His name is Shad. Uh, that should tell you everything you need to know about his character. He is. Uh, he's he's the Luke Skywalker uh, that uh, that we are are dealt. And <laughs> the, the thing is, it, it, Richard Thomas is not the issue with the character, the the writing of this character and the weird, like hyper moralistic. But it's not a moral compass that's set on anything other than this is the way kind of stuff. So, so they, which, they, bring, they bring up the Varda, which they never yes. explain what that is, except they say that it requires being nonviolent. Except also, you could kill if it prevents other people from dying. Yeah, they, they like, brought okay. up a lot of Deus Ex Machina rules. <laughs> oh, well, it's okay if you do this. And hey, number one rule is, hey, this, this, and this. And I'm like, hmm. I, also, I think one of the things is, and this is this is a highlight of, of honestly bad sci-fi writing. And John Sales is a good horror sci-fi writer. He's a good horror writer, and he's a. a Mostly known as a really good uh, drama writer later in his career after this. Um, but here it's it, you see a lot of the mistakes that um, a lot of amateur sci fi stuff It's just throwing in jargon with no context and no no explanation. And I don't need an exposition. Dump, I mean, th- but Star I, Wars. I mean, that's that's where I that's where my joke from the beginning of this episode comes in. They kept calling people forms. Like like they were yeah. calling instead of life forms, it's what kind of form are you is, hey, man, where are you from? <laughs> what yeah. form are you? And I don't mind that kind of vernacular, but the movie, the movie just never feels very lived in. And I think that's that's what really sets us apart from Star Wars is everything feels like a, a pantomime or a play. It's like, let's go through this motion. Let's do this thing. And, and this character like like the, the 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 city of the Akir that you see is very obviously a matte painting. You know, it is yes. like you can see the brush lines on it. You can see the duct tape holding down something in the background of 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 certain spaceship shots. Like they definitely I mean again, 
this this crew did more work than a lot of other crews. I will say that. But oh, yeah, the, but this movie feels its budget. It feels like they didn't have a ton of money to put to put towards things. And that that's really not the problem for me. I mean, I can I can look past some of the sillier outfits and honestly, the admiral makeup job with some and then the other ones you're like, oh, man, because I feel like there are certain makeup artists that hadn't quite yet figured out, hey, don't just cake it on, make it look like actual skin. Yeah, Uh, which is what they had figured out in aspects of the Star Wars trilogy and which is what made it kind of last longer when you get some people who are the clue just like caked in white makeup even though i think they are conceptually interesting it it looks like they're in a play yeah and that's not a problem but when you combine that with a very superficial story because you get the you get all the movements you have the the i guess empire type thing come in and we don't really know where these people come from we don't have any contexts other than they've arrived they they're gonna in seven cycles they're gonna blow you up yeah the the malamori who also seem to be mutants and who can steal body parts from other people and put them on them yeah, and they just don't seem to offer you any sort of context for that. Like, I understand that not everything in the first Star Wars movie is given to you. And a lot of stuff has been explored in expanded universe and TV shows and all that stuff. But there is something, like I said earlier, that's very lived in. And even if something's not explained, the context is there that there is something else going on. And the mutants didn't really feel like that. Th- because they're just there the the other side of this and this is a huge thing for me that i was expecting i was expecting there to be a laser sword of some kind uh, to to pop out of somebody's hand i was expecting shad and sador our 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 big hero and our big villain to actually meet on screen at some point and they do not they never they are never in the yeah. same room in this entire movie. It is all done in ship to ship combat in a way that I did not expect. Yeah, I, there's a, there is a lot about this movie that did offer some surprises. I mean, especially the fact that, yeah, Shad and Sador don't have a showdown. But, I, I, does, does, does Sador even know that Shad exists? No, Sador does not know Shad's name. Sador does not know any of our of our of our heroes' names. I don't think the only the I only think the one, only the only one he might know is Nestor because Nestor gets captured. Yeah, I guess so. And so that that's 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 a huge thing. Is I feel like the you have this dark empire that's coming in for for some reason. And then at the end, it also turns into, but I want to live forever as if that was his goal. Well, it seems like that's his goal because like. So so we'll we'll bring up Nestor. Nestor is uh, at least five beings, but probably more that share a consciousness. And so they are bored because they share a consciousness and they've already experienced all of the stuff that they can possibly experience. So they decide to uh, give five of their people to Shad's cause. 
Now, one of the ideas that they have as they realize, you know, they, they, they get all, all the crew together and make a plan is that, uh, well, so Nestor's body can be controlled remotely. So when they kidnap, so they let one of the Nestor guys get kidnapped and randomly Sador is there to get his arm attached to him. Now, I then flash back and realize that Sador had his arm in a sling at the beginning of the movie, but they never right. explain that. They never point that out. There is no foreshadowing other than you're just supposed to know that that's there. And on some level, I respect that choice. On another level, eh, just give me a little arrow. <laughs> just just point a little arrow on that. Well, for me. I mean, on one hand, I do appreciate some subtlety and they, they do. Sh- but they, I mean, we don't know. The, the biggest thing about Sador and that whole thing is like there's no there's no context. And it almost feels like someone who wrote a very elaborate, lengthy sci fi script and was forced to chop it into a fourth of what it was, uh, which I 100 percent believe there is more to that to this story than we see in the movie, namely because and I mean, this movie is the Magnificent Seven. We we can talk about some of the people that we're introduced to because some of them are very interesting and some of them are not. But just to, to spoil the end of this movie, this movie just stops. It doesn't end. It just stops seemingly mid-sentence. <laughs> yes. However, unlike Old Country for Old Men, it does not do so in a way that like like the good guys win. You know, they they stop the Empire, but like there's no scene kind of like the conclusion of Star Wars. There's like a celebration there, there's, and there's like there's no day. Yeah, it's just kind of like, all right. We, it honestly reminds me of a lot of the movies that we had been watching for that. Patrick and I have been watching for Kaiju versus history, where a lot of these movies, the monster dies and it literally just says the end. There's yeah. nothing else. <laughs> yeah. or two people might look at each other and it just says the end it's it's the wildest thing so i can see coming from maybe that lineage you might be tempted to do so but But, i would figure by 1980 you wouldn't but so so the thing about it is so it's it's shad and and the the female lead uh of the of the film uh manelia played by darlene fugal flugel excuse me uh and they're just they're lamenting over the lost lives that they have lost during this. And then Shad said, well, the thing about the Varda, you know, this religion that I apparently have that I have forsaken the entire movie. This is me interpolating things. Yeah. But, uh, uh, well, they say that no life is really go- gone. Or I think they say being, cause they don't say life. It's again, one of those, you know, things, no, no life is really gone until the, uh, the lives of all the the thing the forms that they affected basically have have affected have have also been gone so they'll be with us forever and he gets this sort of somber look on his face black (laughs) and that's how this movie ends it's wild it's like do they run out of money i don't know i don't know uh yeah i Um, have no idea so let's and it's unfortunate really yeah, because because I I figured there'd be some sort of celebration scene, but I just wanted to find out the cowboy survived. Let's get speaking of cowboy. Let's get into some of these other characters that we were introduced to. So we've talked about Shad. We've talked about Sador. Uh, let's talk about Nanelia. Uh, Nanelia is uh, the daughter of Dr. Hephaestus, who is 
this guy, well, I guess, do we need to bring up, <laughs> do we need to bring up Zed the Corsair? He's like a combination between, I guess, the Obi-Wan slash Uncle Owen of the movie. He's yeah. like, he he basically sets Shad on his quest. He's the one of the Vardens who is not okay, who is totally fine with killing people. <laughs> Um, he's also blind. You know how I know, Miles? How do you know? Because when the sh- giant ship in the opening in the opening moments is hovering over the Yakir, he's looking down. And then a few minutes later, when they are trying to figure out what to do, because this guy named Sador is, has threatened their their uh, community and all the people are in around this this uh, conference table and he walks into the room. He's looking up <laughs> his way. To I kind of like that. They don't really point out the like, oh, you old blind fool or something like that. I, I didn't mind that. <laughs> just, I, just, I kind of I kind of appreciate that. It's just what, so funny that the way that this actor plays blind is looking in the opposite direction of wherever the action is supposed to happen. Yeah, I just I really I appreciate that on a weird level. <laughs> there, There is some weird stuff. And unfortunately, all the weird stuff happens around every female character in this film yeah so nanelia who who we were talking about uh she's the daughter of dr hephaestus who was a an old uh, an, an old ally of zed and uh they live in and she has grown up in this uh this space station it's actually got kind of a cool design um but it's just yeah. surrounded by people doing the robot the entire time <laughs> it's it's a very very old school way of playing android for sure (laughs) um but uh but dr hephaestus is like oh yes there's a dude here uh dr hephaestus who is basically just a head on a on a a bunch of electronics now he's very old and he's on life support systems and he wants his daughter to get down Mm -hmm. he wants her to start procreating uh, which is uh, which here's another. <laughs> OK. Uh, that, so that's uh, female character. Number one, female character. Number two is a uh, Saint X-Men. A Valkyrie warrior. Um, I'm just not a Valkyrie, a Valkyrie, which I'm a OK Valkyrie. with. That. She's dressed yeah, like it's a, fine. She's dressed like a Norse goddess. Um, yeah, she's dressed as Thor. Uh, and of course, she is. Uh, oh, she knows all about procreation and she's ready to talk about it. Um, but here's the little uh, here's a little plot uh, plot thread that I. Uh, oh, why did I pay attention to this, Miles? Why did I pay attention to this? So. Uh, Nanelia and and Shad are talking and they're talking about the birds and the bees and the threes because Shad is from a a. a, a a species that has you know male and female but nanelia oh her species has three so we need something and then why was her dad so excited if there was this other thing that needed to happen right <laughs> <laughs> like that's just a plot hole right there gang just a plot hole there's that so there's that you have you have saint Men who is kind of talked down to by shad this entire time the entire time for uh, she, no good reason yeah um other than just being this weird puritan farm boy 
and I, he just like, he just he just does not like her. It's because her ship is small, and when they were in their fake fight, she shot him with a thing that was fake, but he didn't realize that that was fake. He just thought that was all her ship could do. So he's like, please stop talking to us. Don't come with us because you're not going to be able to help, despite the fact that she definitely can because she's from a warrior race. You moron. But they yeah. never say that out loud. They just let they just let St. X-Men die saving the day. Um, rest in power, Queen. Yes. And then unfortunately, we have uh, another woman who gets taken by the two like tag and bink like characters the two people that uh that that sador has left around um that character is uh supposedly maul who is shad's sister yeah that that is not set on screen and it is it's never not. mentioned again <laughs> yeah he doesn't come home and say hey where where's sis and um the horrible last couple days she had yeah um and I, the less we talk about what that happened there, the better. Yeah, uh, moving but, on. Uh, so anyway, she gets blown up with the, those guys, um, which. <sighs> OK. Uh, we should probably talk about uh, some 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 of our other characters, because some of them matter and some of them don't. So we've got <laughs> uh, Cayman of the Lend- Lambda Zone, Cayman of the Lazuli. Uh, who is basically a lizard guy uh, and he doesn't really have a lot to do other than to, to other than to say Lazuli as he dies. Yeah, I, I love that they have a lizard guy named Cayman. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that's that's great. Yeah, uh, we have the character of Gelt, which is one of the most interesting, useless things that's in this movie. So. Uh, Shad has to go to the like he's he's trying to sneak into this place that's basically sounds like he's going to Moss Eisley, except when he gets there, it's all covered in dust and no one is there. And the only person he finds is Gelt, who is just hiding out because he's been an assassin and he's got a bounty on his head from every every system in the in the galaxy. And even though he's got tons and tons and tons of of money and riches, he just he has to watch his back constantly. So he's willing to join Shad's crusade uh, for a meal and a place to hide. And that's the only conversation they have before Shad, who is treated as this cool guy that we need to all love and, and associate with and be into uh, gets killed. <laughs> it's like, Oh no. Yeah. Like the Shad takes the time to in the middle of the battle, Shad takes the time to bury Gelt. It, does, it doesn't make any sense. With a full it's, course meal. <laughs> it's one of those situations where, obviously, this is Robert Vaughn playing Gelt, and Gelt is a play on Lee from The Magnificent Seven, and I believe that we are supposed to infer more about him because we have seen Lee in The Magnificent Seven, but I've never seen The Magnificent Seven, so I got nothing to say about that. Other than it's felt like there was stuff left on the cutting room floor uh, there. Um, Right. And and that's that's that is the crux is there are bits and pieces. I think there is a there is a a world out there where this movie really landed what it was trying to do. And 
over the years, this movie has developed a cult reputation, and I can see it. I can see the fun to be had with this movie. It's, it is an enjoyable experience for the most part. Um, but there, there is a, a superficiality and dryness about it that I think keeps it from being like its intended material. Um, there's also a lack of, and, and I, that's what kind of I want to talk about is the lessons that they don't learn from Star Wars, because the space opera part they understand in terms of okay, this is the kind of story that we need to tell. But I don't think they understand why that story worked, why that story was a hit, and what made that story tick. Well, so, so this is where I have to add on to a little bit of this because we got to talk about Cowboy. Um, his name is Cowboy. Oh yeah, we have we have the Han Solo uh, character, short for Space Cowboy. Um, and and this the the character Cowboy played by George Pappard, um, of A Team fame. Uh, he is from Earth. <laughs> and you know this when they zoom into on his ship for the first time and it's got a confederate flag on the side uh whoo all right um but um cowboy as a character works mostly because he is one of three characters in this movie including shad and anelia that actually interact with more than two other characters in the same scene yeah when when the when they get back when after shad has gathered everybody uh, gathered his whole force and they go back to defend akir cowboy goes to the planet with shad to prepare everybody else stays mm -hmm. in their ships uh well not everybody else because there's the 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 uh foreshadowing twins that speak in heat uh which is a cool concept but you know um a uh, very cool concept i wish we had played with that a lot more yeah exactly but cowboy gets to gets to do things like he's got a scotch and soda belt <laughs> he's got uh the the best <laughs> the best special effect in the film is yeah, his little I, scotch belt I especially the scene where you forgot the um the club the the, the soda the club soda and he goes no i didn't <laughs> <laughs> it's like like the first time he uses it, it's like uh, this is scotch this is soda <laughs> just very yeah I mean, very funny. I mean the thing is uh, the, the the character i expected to like the least because it was very much i'm from earth i'm from earth and doing basically your standard like all the stuff he does is standard cowboy stuff i mean and, he's grilling hot dogs at a campfire that he gives to some of the the people and it's like oh yeah it's earth food but you know he 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 gets he gets away with it because he's he's the most charming I, 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 of any I of these found people. him so charming. Uh, but but again, the other thing I think this movie fails at is that um, oh we didn't talk about Nell either. The ship, the awful looking ship that Shad flies. It's an awful looking ship. It's a really it's bad an awful design. looking ship. It's also I don't think I don't necessarily think Nell is horrible. I actually like the, Nell. The voice, the dubbing, the actual physical dubbing and overlaying it into the audio is awful. I I didn't find that problem, but Nell is the voice of the ship. Um, so the I ship, just wish it sounded like it was coming from somewhere other than the actual dialogue track, because it just feels like she, he's talking to someone off screen. Miles told me to, to to say this on air after I said I wasn't going to, but I have to talk about the ship for a second. <laughs> um. This is going to be probably the I mean, this isn't, you know, I'm not going to I'm 
I'm not saying any bad words. It's just a description of how the ship looks. If you're looking at it from the front, it looks like. It looks the outline of one body part and the it, outline of another. Yeah, it looks like a uterus and, and ovaries and fallopian tubes on the top. And then just. But imagine that if at the bottom there were testicles. That's what the ship looks like. It does. It's not a good looking ship. It's very ugly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because it's it just it feels like it was just kind of cobbled together and, and it likely just was. Uh, and I yeah, I, I didn't really think much of the design of of now. It's it's a it's a goofy look. And it doesn't seem not, none of the stuff with the ships seem practical at all. I hate, hate, hate. And I don't use this on the show very often, but I hate the way the battle controls look in these ships. They're awful. They all control differently, which which was which is like, and OK, none of them are good. And none of them are good. <laughs> like you have dudes in the fighters that are literally sitting in front of a keyboard, but they're tilted towards the camera, looking at the camera as they randomly press buttons on a keyboard. It's bad. It's very bad. It's very dumb. None of these, none of these control schemes seem like they work. They're all the worst things I've ever seen. Yes, they're different and they are not typical. And I will give them credit for those two things, but there's a big negative five for, uh, just that none of this stuff looks like it makes any sense to actually use. Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. And and because of that, it, it does it does all of these things kind of make the movie drag a little bit. And a movie like this needs to clip along. You need to be, you know, constantly kind of being enjoying a, a space opera like this, especially in response to Star Wars. And I think these things really make the the film feel a little slower. Like it's, it's not a long movie. It's an hour and something minutes, hour and 40 minutes. It's not not super long. But it does kind of feel like it. And I think. I think, like I said, I think a lot of these a lot of these movies, I can't speak for the ones I haven't seen, but I feel that the law, the wrong lessons get learned anytime something massively popular happens. And we see that here. I mean, there's there's some good stuff and there's a there's a lot to enjoy in Battle Beyond the Stars. But I think. And I mean, it's good that this film was a, a modest success because I love watching space operas. I wish we had more. But at the same time, I think reactionary movies to a popular trend tend to show why the original works and why the movie going off of it doesn't. Yeah, uh, we, we actually have an email sent in to us uh, from Kyle talking about this. Uh, so Kyle has seen this before. I thought the story was a little lacking, but it seemed to to feel like Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven yeah. as well. Uh, but he's not sure of the cast, mainly George Papard, a.k.a. Cowboy, which, again, you know, everybody has their own taste. But he felt he just felt Cowboy was out of place. Mostly because I don't he, disagree with that one. I, I, he's 100 percent correct. Uh, like, and, I may have it enjoyed him, but he is absolutely out of place. Uh, he, he kept waiting for him to say, I love it when a plan comes together, which is <laughs> which is pretty great. Uh, but of yeah. course, he also wants Cowboy's utility belt, because who wouldn't? 
Uh, he, yeah. Uh, he thinks that that uh, Robert Vaughn was a good choice. Uh, and yeah. uh, but and, and then all, in all, he liked the movie, uh, but he tends to like low budget movies. So uh, and and for for a low budget movie, I mean, you could do a lot worse. I mean, I'm I am judging this as a Star Wars ripoff and not necessarily uh, on its own merit, which I know isn't particularly fair. This is just the lens we're looking at it this month. So we might be a little more critical than we usually are. Um, but that's not to say anything negative about the movie. I thought it was pretty fun to watch. And I mean, for an afternoon flick, if this had come on, you know, growing up and it came on, uh, you know, the afternoon, Saturday afternoon movie, I would have eaten this up as a kid. A hundred percent. It ain't terrible, gang. It's not no. bad. It's 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 not great, but it's not bad. And it's definitely I think it's it's way better than you anticipate it being, because when you think Star Wars ripoff, you think. Uh, you have a very different idea uh, of, of what what these things are. And and that is, I think, probably what we're going to see in some of the other films that we have picked out for this month. Uh, but but uh, final words on Battle Beyond the Stars, Miles. So I, I think it's I think it is an admirable B movie that shot a lot higher and climbed a lot higher than it had any right to. And that is a testament to the skills of a lot of the people beginning their careers in this film. Um, I, as a Star Wars clone, I don't think it works as well. Like I've said, I don't think it learned the right lessons from Star Wars. It, I wish the movie felt a little more lived in. I feel like she was a little bit more uh, confident in its material. And maybe a little less embarrassed by its material. I feel, I feel like the script just doesn't feel like it really wants to be there and i think that's the biggest problem because i feel like everyone else does i uh, think that everyone else seems to at least be having a good time there's a, a wide array of characters and types of characters and that's really fun it maybe it honestly felt very much like uh either star wars or an episode of deep space nine because of the variety of, of creatures that we saw yeah I, and i'll add into this like i think that this movie while clearly being influenced by star wars didn't want to borrow too much from Star Wars, but in doing so, borrowed too much from Magnificent Seven. Yeah, and, and, and that's and, and that's where the, the the they just didn't quite. They're two puzzle pieces that just didn't quite fit. Yeah, I I, I would agree with that because I I, I like they tried you know a different angle of Kurosawa, but at the same time. I, I wish they had just been more conf confident in just making a great space opera because we need more of them. And, you know, I'm thinking of the movies that I liked as a kid that were big space movies that are not, I mean, I assume uh, great movies like mom and dad save the world. <laughs> um, I remember seeing that in theaters and loving it. Haven't seen it since I'm be wild if it holds up yeah um but but as, as a kid i would eat up all that kind of stuff because we we were kind of starved for it and yes we have a lot of star wars now but as far as other big space operas there's not a ton not really uh so so that's where we're going to end up on battle beyond the stars uh so next week we are going to venture away from america and we are going to go to japan to watch a 1978 a sci-fi space opera called message from space. This is the attempt uh, overseas uh, to, to capitalize on star Wars uh, starring actors like Sonny Chiba 
uh, in, in main roles. Uh, this was uh, produced by the Toei Company, who, if you've watched any Dragon Ball, you're familiar with the Toei Company. They are still very big, both in uh, animation and live action. They're responsible for the Kamen Rider and a lot of Super Sentai, like Power Rangers uh, shows and things like that. So this is that company, a uh, very early take, 1978's Message from Space. I'm I'm super excited about this. I've never seen this film, and I'm I'm a fan of Kenji uh, Fukusaka who directed this. He did a number of the Yakuza films, like uh, Battles of the Honor and Humanity from the 70s, and he is probably best known to the West for his final film, Battle Royale. Oh, which we have watched way back in the day on The More You Nerd. So that is very interesting. Um, this movie, we could only find it on YouTube. Uh, it is uh, in dubbed on YouTube. So that is where we're going to be watching it. There does not seem to be a that great of a of a legit copy that we can get over here, especially not streaming. So that is where we're going to watch it. Uh, hopefully that'll be a decent quality version but we will see you next week. Message from space. Uh, so now if you would like to reach out to us, you can find us at the where you can find this and every one of our episodes. You can uh, go to facebook.com slash the You can tweet to us at the and you can f- email us the at gmail.com. That's the at gmail.com. And until then, Miles, we do as the Varda tells us. Nerd. nerd. Out.